Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences, and to inspire you. Today's guest is Andre Jackson. I've known Andre for a pretty long time, since he was 12, in fact. Andre went to school for fashion design and switched to fiber art in graduate school. If you're not familiar with fiber art, stay tuned, we explain. Andre is one of the most thoughtful, wise, and creative souls I am privileged to know, which is all the more astonishing given that he's still just under 30. This interview is a treat. Enjoy. I am talking to Andre today, and Andre Andre is a little bit different because I have known Andre since he was in sixth grade, and I don't want to think about how long ago that was, Andre. I really That's probably wise. <laughs> um, I was mentioning to a mutual friend, uh, one of my former teachers, that I graduated from high school a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and she couldn't believe that it had been that long. I know. <laughs> I'm I'm right there with her. Uh, so, yeah, you've known me for a very long time. A very long time. But that actually, um, I feel like that's that's kind of a privilege because I got to see you change and grow. So, you know, I mean, you were one heck of a cute 12-year-old. But you, you have come so freaking far since you were one heck of a cute 12-year-old playing a donkey and Pinocchio at middle school. I like to think so. <laughs> I really do like to think so. <laughs> you you have, but I'm I'm curious because you were in the middle school play. That was I think where I first met you. Mm-hmm. And so you obviously knew I'm sure way before you were 12 that you wanted or needed to do creative things. Yes. So I'm yes. curious about how how you discovered that and you know what what happened when you said hey i want to sing i want to act i want to make stuff when you were little well it's it's been a journey i think each of us knows that we need to create and make things i think that um creativity is one of the um kind of innate needs we have coming to this world. Mm -hmm. Um, Not that when you're a kid, you're thinking of it that way. You just know what you like to do and what makes you feel joy. Um, And so early on, I just liked to draw. I was one of those kids that drew on walls, drew on paper. Like I drew on anything. It really didn't matter um, what it was. And I got into a lot of trouble for that. (laughs) Um, And I knew kind of early on that, Um, basically as soon as I knew you could be an artist, I wanted to be one of those things. The unfortunate thing about being a kid is that people bring their own kind of baggage to your dreams. Yeah. And, um, you know, because each of us goes through a point where reality has to be kind of broken to you, Mm -hmm. um, we, we feel it necessary to do that for someone else. Um, because I think we believe that the sooner we tell a kid that, hey, you have to be able to make money, 
the the less it hurts. And it, it really doesn't hurt any less to have someone say, well, you can't really do that because you won't be able to support yourself. Um, and so that was kind of hard, but I have the type of personality where, um, I kind of see the problem and try to figure out my way around it. And so as a kid, I was like, you know, flipping through a career book. And I always tell this story, um, flipping through like a Dr. Seuss style book, um, about careers. And there is one where there's a fashion designer. And there's a drawing in front of her. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, so I could draw and make clothing and support myself because people always need clothes. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of started me on the path toward um, studying fashion and being interested in clothing, Um, which, you know, that from there kind of branches into a lot of different things um, because all of my interests are about. Um, what we put on, um, who we are, who we want to broadcast we are. Um, basically, all the things I talk about in my work now. Yeah, and I I should have said at the beginning, and I don't know if you're going to like this when I say this, but it's true. Andre is way smarter than me, and Andre thinks way more deeply about how all of these things come together than most people I know, which is part of why I wanted to talk to him. and you know what you know what it took me a very long time to realize that not everybody does that yeah um that's like one of the problems with kind of having a one person experience in a world of billions Mm -hmm. you think everyone is living the kind of same life you're living and so for a long time i really thought that you know other people saw clothing the way that I see it and other people saw um, kind of different human experiences as all being pretty much equal and, um, you know, finding respect and, you know, making and art and how important they are, you know, to our well-being. Yeah, definitely. And and that's actually part of why I do this podcast, because I think that there's a lot that is out there that people don't see in places where they don't see it. They think of art and creating as painting or dancing or acting or music and don't see it in the other places that, you know, yeah, actually, you know, engineering is really creative. Science is really creative. And we exactly. divide things into little categories at, at our own loss. At our own loss is such a great way to put it. Um, when I was doing clothing uh, more frequently, I was using math and, you know, geometry. Every single time I had to make a pattern, like, you know, figuring out how to get cloth, which, you know, is flexible, but not as flexible as you think when it comes to getting it to go one, go over one curve at one direction then go over a different curve at another direction. Like your body is all curves and getting this flat material to conform to a body is a lot of math and geometry and, you know, physics in some places. And so, you know, I'm not going to say I'm a mathematician or anything, but having to work through my creativity in such a, 
um, kind of analytical way was a little bit difficult for me at times because I think we we've tried to divorce how those two work together for really everyone. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing, you know, people who do code will tell you all the time. Like you think it's just, you know, straightforward numbers and, you know, listening to them, it's, it's to them, it's art because they have to figure out how to put it together. And it's unique to each person doing the different code. And it's really no different than any other art form. That's really cool. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you brought, I'm glad you brought up everything. That's why I wanted to talk to you. So, <laughs> cause I knew you would, you have a really, really serious talent for seeing all of the stuff that most of us miss. I will take that as a <laughs> profound compliment because you should. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to put that on a business card just yet. But I feel <laughs> like it should be on there. It probably should. I mean, getting back to something that you, you said a couple minutes ago, when we were talking about being a kid. I mean, I, I never really thought about the idea that, you know, yeah, we all have that reality check and somebody tells us, oh, that's great, but, you know, don't get your hopes up because you can't do that and make a living when actually you probably can. It's just that your odds are really small, but there is a significant difference there. And, and your comment about how people seem to think that that'll hurt less if they tell you when you're younger, but it doesn't kind of makes me wonder how it is that you came to notice that. Well, I think that, you know, I was just telling someone the other day that, you know, hindsight is not necessarily 2020. You're just able to understand a little bit better once you take off the blinders. Um, I can understand all of that now from the position I'm in as someone who's pursuing the things that they want to pursue. Um, And, you know, I'm not necessarily financially successful at this point, but, you know, I've done a lot of things that I never thought I would do um, simply because I didn't think it was possible because, you know, people are telling you that you can't do something that you know in your heart Mm -hmm. you're meant to do. Um, And so you can kind of follow the script your entire life but still have this nagging feeling like this isn't what I'm actually supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of where I got with fashion. It could only do, it could only fulfill my desire to create as far as the limits of, you know, making the same thing um, could take me. Like at the end of the day, I don't have the same passion for clothing as, you know, the, you know, a Balenciaga or, you know, a Coco Chanel where they, they really enjoyed clothing so much and really enjoyed dressing people to the point where they could become innovative in their field. Mm -hmm. Um, I love what I do now because it's specific to me and my vision and my point of view. Um, and for some reason, everything I've done up until now was, um, just insufficient in terms of really capturing everything I wanted to say and everything I wanted to do. So how is it that you moved from fashion to fiber art specifically? Well, I, so I, um, this will take me back to finishing my first degree. 
Um, I thought I was going to be doing fashion. Um, I have a BA in fashion and I was looking at grad school for fashion. I was like, you know, I want to teach someday. I really love, um, you know, impacting other people, getting them to also be creative. So I'll kind of apply to schools and apply to jobs and kind of figure out where it all kind of falls. Um, and so I eventually got into Savannah College of Art and Design, uh, into their fashion design program. And I did that for about a year and a half. And it was just not a good fit. Um, I was working way harder than I should have been. Um, you know, that kind of old saying about putting, you know, the square peg and, you know, mm-hmm. the triangle or whatever it is. I was really trying to force something that wasn't working. Um, but since we had electives, I was going over to the fibers department and taking those electives. And it felt like a much better environment for me to be talking about the things I wanted to talk about. Um, there wasn't pressure to make the same thing every quarter. Um, the freedom really opened up a lot of different um, aspects of my creativity, aspects of my personality. Um, and so really all the work that came out of that um, was as much a surprise for me as probably anyone else. Well, I want to hear more about pretty much everything you just said, but I think first we should explain to people who might not know what fiber art is, what that means. Well, it's a little bit difficult to explain. Um, on the base level, um, fiber art is known for being um, essentially art that deals with textiles um, and textile processes. Um, so, you know, spinning, weaving, felting, um, knitting, crocheting, um, anything that deals with fabric, um, it's considered fiber art. Um, but I like to understand it as, um, the materials and the processes and the history, um, of basically materiality, um, not to be redundant, but, you know, I can go to Home Depot and get, um, vinyl tubing and that's still fiber work. Uh, someone has to design how, you know, those materials get made. And while most programs and fibers deal with textiles and those things, um, you know, some of those programs um, in textile design are science programs. You know, they're, they're the, the chemicals of making man-made fibers. And so fibers really can mean a lot of different things. But for me specifically, it's about, you know, the history of the processes um, the history of the materials, uh, and the history of fibers in general. But that's not to say that you're just a historian. No, not at all. You know, I would not necessarily say I am a historian. Um, but I think that those, it's the history that adds the layers of context to my work. Um, I personally believe if you're not familiar with history, um, you can't really understand the present. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I try to 
understand a lot of the history of, you know, my artists, my artist faves, um, history about um, identity and how we understand it. Um, because all of that adds into kind of how we got here and what's lacking. Ooh. Yeah, exactly. So like, <laughs> you know, if I'm reading something and I say, oh, okay, this is what work has already been done. And we're still kind of talking similarly about it today. So what happened in the last, you know, two or three decades that we didn't start to, you know, fill in those gaps? Um, what what have we kind of lost and what where was the ball dropped? Oh, that's a deep question. I I can just imagine that you could get lost down that rabbit hole pretty easily. Yes. <laughs> but I think that, you know, for me, because I am so interested in so many things, it's a lot easier for me to kind of put a plug in it and then go read something else. And then I'll, you know, have a moment where it pops back into my head. Oh, there was that one thing in that one book. And then I have to go back and try to figure out which book it was in because at that mm-hmm. point I've already read something else or watched something else. But eventually when I find it, I'm like, oh, okay, this relates to this, th- that relates to that. And then I'm thinking, okay, well, I wonder if those people talk to each other or I wonder if those people have a similar mentor or if their mentors talk to each other. Like how, how are these people connected? Um, if they, and if they didn't live at the same time, did this person ever come across this other person's research or writing or anything like that? Is there a particular place where you learned to start making connections like that? Or did it just kind of happen organically? I think it kind of happened organically for me. I think it's just the way that um, I kind of came to knowledge. Um, I have always been deeply interested in learning Um, And I think that when you are a member of a marginalized community, um, you kind of get used to having insufficient knowledge coming coming your way. Um, For example, you know, I can get plenty of information about Black history in school, Mm -hmm. not so much queer history. Right. um, Which that's starting to change, but that means I have to go and look for it. And then once I go and find queer history, well, surprise, there's not very many brown people, not very many people of color. Right. Specifically, you know, where are the black queer people? Where do I see myself in that world? And so as a result, I'm forced to start to piece together, piece together my own um, kind of base of study I have to figure out who am I going to read? Who am I going to watch? Who am I going to listen to? To start to piece together my image in the world. And I'm just thinking as I'm listening to you that so many of us never do that at all. And yet I bet more people do it than I would realize. You know, if I could look at a number, I bet I'd be surprised. I think you would be surprised, but I also don't think it's as many as should be doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most people kind of just settle for um, kind of what's given to them, which I think is also a way to cope. Um, but for me, it just never felt like enough. Right. Um, and then from there, I'm starting to see 
you know, similarities in experience. Um, you know, how people are treated, how people want to be treated, how communities are formed. Um, and to me, that is a form of creativity. Um, you know, building your own, building your own self-image and self-worth and then seeing the possibility and um, the creativity in others. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking too, like, you know, we, we ought to be very, very clear that it's not necessarily a judgment on people who don't do that kind of research because everybody still has the same 24 hours in the day and the same obligations. And there are issues of, of time and priority and things like that. But I, I can't imagine how it doesn't lend an awful lot of depth to your life and your work. If you have the time and the inclination to do that and having seen your work, I know that, that it informs pretty much everything you do. I was just about to say that. I mean, it works for me because this is the life I want to live. Like I couldn't, like this is a full-time job in my mm-hmm. head um, where, you know, I make objects, I make art, but then I also read a lot of research because I want to also write about the art that I'm making um, and the worlds I'm creating by making the objects that I make. Um like to me, that is what I am supposed to be doing. So that the person who works, you know, more than 40 hours a week and doesn't have time to do even a fraction of what I'm doing can come and see my art, maybe not get it right away, but then they'll, you know, it'll click for them at some point when they're living their life. Oh, that's what that's about. Mm-hmm. That's that, that's that relates to what I feel and what I know to be true from my experiences. Yeah. And, and I think too, you know, you describe yourself as a visual artist, a writer and a scholar, but with you, that's really not three separate things. That's they really, it's a, I want to say symbiotic kind of thing, even though it's three of them. I don't know if that word works exactly that way, but we'll pretend it does. Um, You know, cause, cause I don't think you can separate those three things out. They are not separate for me. Um, I am realistic about how the world views artists and how the world views writers and how the world views scholars. Because we view those as separate people, separate jobs and separate occupations, I feel the need to make sure that it's known, like, these are the three things I do. And so even if I only write once one thing in a year, that doesn't make me not a writer. Even if I only research a couple things in a year, that doesn't make me not a scholar or a researcher. And if I only make one object in a year, that doesn't make me not an artist. Like none of those, like all of those things come together in my work. And so really when I'm making an object, I'm thinking about the research that I did and I'm thinking about how I'm going to write about it. When I'm writing, I'm thinking about the objects that I made and the research that now needs to go into this writing. And when I'm doing research, I'm thinking, how can I make this into an object that talks about all these things that I'm researching and how then can I write about this in a way that respects the work that I'm doing as a visual artist and also pays homage to the research that I'm doing um, 
because I don't make anything in a vacuum. I mean, no one makes anything in a vacuum, but I just think that the research that I do has such an important and special part in the process that I make sure I tell people all the time, like I'm a researching artist. Mm -hmm. Like none of the work that I do starts in my head alone. It starts from my experiences. I will always say that, but the way I get to the final object is to read about other people who also have similar experiences or can help me break down my experiences in a, uh, in a way that's relatable to other people. That makes sense. So do you find that, that synthesizing all of those three things happens more in one particular part? Like for me, it would probably happen more in writing because I find that's where I find out what I really think. But I don't know if it if it's still that as interconnected for you among the three or if it's particularly one or the other. It really happens all at the same time, um, which I know sounds crazy, but um, I have the idea about something I want to make. And then I also think about who can I read mm-hmm. um, to kind of get those ideas together. For example, right now I'm working on, I'm personally working through my relationship with masculinity as a um, person who was assigned male at birth, who is gender nonconforming. And outside of the fact that I'm making objects that are going to be exploring masculinity and my ideas around it, I'm also reading about masculinity. Um, Right now I'm reading Bell Hooks, um, We Real Cool, where she's, um, investigates black male masculinity and then i'm thinking about okay so once i finish doing some of that research i can start to write about um, my personal experiences how that starts to shift based on the research that i'm doing and then how the work comes to be in terms of the physical objects and why the choices i'm making reflect the research that i'm doing and the experiences i had and so I'm thinking about all of those things at once. I'm not physically doing all of them at once because that's it. Honestly, they're massive undertakings. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's one of the downfalls of being the type of artist that I am is that people don't necessarily see all the other work that I do. Right. Um, in the background, they see the objects and they're like, oh, that doesn't take you that long. Well, <laughs> once I make it, it doesn't. But <laughs> When I start, it takes a very long time because I'm, I'm, I'm not just making the object. Mm-hmm. By the time I get to the actual making part, like the actual finished product, I've already done multiple hours and hours and weeks of work. Um, so it's, it's just, it's, it, it really just all happens at the same time. Because by the time I kind of start an object, I've already kind of poured over it in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I've already figured out which books I'm going to be reading at the same time. Yeah. So, so if you're reading at the same time, how much does the final product that you, the product that you had in mind when you started reading mm-hmm. change as you're reading? Is that, I have to imagine that happens at least some of the time. All the time. Yeah, absolutely. All the time. Because basically I go into it and I have one idea of how I want the work to be received um, and then as I'm working and reading, I'm thinking, oh, huh, well, that's different than what I initially thought, or, oh, 
that's really important. I need to add that um, into this piece. Or if it's a series, okay, well, this piece is almost done, but this next piece needs to completely change in order um, for the conversation between the two pieces to reflect this new information Mm -hmm. or this nuanced information. Does that get in your way having to alter like that? Or are you just used to it by now? I'm pretty used to it. Uh, I basically have ideas and I think that I know exactly how they're going to go. And then they just don't end up that way. That sounds like the way I write a book. So I get that. Basically my, my brain cannot slow down. And so I have to speed up my creative process. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people can, you know, research and then sketch and research some more and sketch some more and refine and then test, then go back and finalize their sketches, then make their first prototype. And then they, they finally are at the end result. By the time they've done that, I've already had 10 more ideas. <laughs> um, and I, and I, and I don't want to lose them. Right. And so that, you know, and that's part of the, like I've started rather than forcing my mind to work in a way that it doesn't want to work. I've just started adjusting how adjusting the creative process to include how quickly my mind processes some of this information. Well, your mind kind of has to process it quickly because good grief, you're taking in a lot. I am. I am. Well, and I'm taking in a lot of concepts that are not visual concepts. Mm -hmm. Um, Like it just, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know how to describe that. It's just, you know, I was trying to figure out, you know, how do I talk about, you know, race being a social construct and, you know, gender being a social construct and, um, you know, all of these things that are being studied sociologically um, through visual art. And then how do I also do that while respecting the aesthetics that are important in visual art and respecting the gravity of the field of study that is sociology. That's immense. That's like a thesis right there every single time. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And I do want to say that, you know, there's nothing wrong with adjusting your creative process to make it work for you. There's nothing that says that the other way that you described is the right way or the only good way or anything like that. I mean, you wouldn't be able to do what you do if you tried to do it that way. And I mean, so, and that's precisely correct. And I think that that is one of the tough parts about um, studying creativity in a professional environment. Mm-hmm. Um, i.e. going to school for art. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. You're, you have people telling you one way to do something because it's the way that they were taught to do. And they, it ended up kind of working out for them and they think it will be able to work for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does not necessarily work that way for everyone. No. Uh, so figuring out my own way to work was really important. Um, and then learning how to stand up for my way of work. Ooh, tell me more about that. Well, I think that people kind of see the amount that I do and they think, well, it can't be done. Like you're taking on too much. Mm. And it's like, you know, I have to tell people what gets done is what gets done. 
when I was in undergrad, um, I started out studying costume design um, because it bridged the gap between um, fashion and my interest in theater. And I ended up having to costume a show in three weeks, Ooh. Uh, which is crazy. That's, a, that's like no time at all. Mm-hmm. And there are things I would have done differently. There are things that I would have loved to pay more attention to. But uh, my mentor at the time told me that the show you did in the three weeks was the show you were supposed to do in the three weeks. If you had more time, you would have done something completely different. Mm -hmm. But you didn't have more time. And so you didn't do anything completely different. Um, And that has kind of stuck with me. What I have done when I have it done is what it was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for some people, they hear that and they're like, well, if you had done less and focused on those things, you get those things done. And while that may be true for some, that's not necessarily true for me. Mm -hmm. Um, In grad school, I basically made all of the work that I was showing um, at the end of the summer during the summer. Um, But I had also prepped before that summer all the things I wanted to actually get made. And so because I had already done work to kind of prototype some of those ideas or work through some of those ideas, it made it easier for me when I got to that point to just say, okay, this is what I need to focus on. This is what I need to do. All right. I'm tired of doing this one thing. I need to go do this other thing. Mm -hmm. I actually experienced more burnout when I try to focus on one project mm-hmm. than I do when I actually am able to, you know, put my crocheting down and go do some weaving, put the weaving down and go do some reading, put the reading down, write some poems, journal, anything, you know, anything else that kind of makes my mind do something different so that I don't experience fatigue as quickly. Yeah. Human beings were not meant to do the same thing over and over again for an extended period of time. And I, I often will tell people, you know, who have lots of different ideas and can't decide which one to do is like, go do the one that calls you the loudest today. And then tomorrow, go do the one that calls you the loudest. And it, you know, it may not be the one you did today. There's nothing wrong with that, which is exactly what you're talking about. And that has been what works for me. Like right now I'm having some issues because I can't possibly do a lot lot of the things I was doing before. Um, I don't have the same amount of space. Mm -hmm. Um, And so production is a lot slower now because I'm like, well, I only can do two things at once. And that actually bores me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, figuring out that that's the way I work was actually the, the kind of breakthrough towards figuring out the best way to be creative. Well, yeah, it would be. And, and, you know, there was also something that, that you said that I don't remember now exactly how you said it, but along the lines of, you know, when when you said that, that your mentor said, this is the thing that you were meant to do in this amount of time. Right. I think we get so hung up on the idea of the best right? Mm -hmm. Like I want to do my best. I want to do the best when, you know, I'm not entirely sure there is a best, you know, I I think it is, you know, this is what you were meant to do right now. You did the best you could with these circumstances and that's plenty. 
I mean, I don't even want and to say that's what? good enough because good enough doesn't sound good enough, you know, right. But there's nothing wrong with doing the best work you can do given the circumstances you have. And there's no reason not to be proud of that. You're but exactly right. On it. One of the issues for me, and you know, th- I want to be as transparent as possible because I think you can look at my practice and see beautiful objects and see um, an immense amount of work because it, it is there. But I also, you know, wish I were able to do the same type of work through drawing. I've actually had a really bad relationship with drawing for my entire career as an artist, because I think that we don't let people um, stay where they stay, where they are in terms of their process. A lot of times Mm -hmm. we're always pushing them to be better and do better and be better and do better. When sometimes you just need to sit where you are, where your where your current skill level is at, and kind of work out rather than working up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of kept me from drawing for a very long time. Um, and like sometimes I'll pick it up and get really good, and then I'll kind of just drop it. Um, and then you, then when you go back to pick it up, it's not as good because it's it's. It's the same thing as doing a sport. Your muscles need to remember how to do it. You're actually, you're training every time you draw. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same thing with any creative um, endeavor. Every time you do it, you're training. And so if you write a really bad novel, that was training. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you, if you, you know, for example, if you're picking up crocheting and it's lopsided, that's training. Everything you do is training. And so um, in October, I got a loom, a floor loom, and I hadn't really been on a traditional floor loom in a year at that point. And so every time I go to put on a new warp, I make mistakes. And I don't take it all off. I just keep going. I fix the mistake because I know that that's training. Mm -hmm. Because the next time, I'm probably not going to make the same mistake. And even if I do, I know how to fix it. Right. The world won't end. Exactly. And so I'm hoping to pick up a drawing practice again that is more forgiving and kind to myself because we all deserve to be a lot kinder to ourselves when we take on something that we're not good at. Oh, amen to that. I think we deserve to be a lot kinder to ourselves regardless, but especially when we think we're not good at something. I mean, part of what helped is that um, I have a grandma who worked um, in corrections for a very long time and you know she's retired now and then she started picking up an art practice and watching her growth has been really important to me Um, she looks at videos on youtube she buys books and she just tries everything she wants to try there's no pretense there's no preconceived notions about what she can and can't do she just does it Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful to see the growth. It's beautiful to see um, the joy she gets from doing it. And it's also nice to see how long it takes to grow for some people. Um, because for some, they can pick up art very quickly. They can pick up multiple media um, and just be really great at understanding how they all work. But for some people, it just ta- it takes longer. 
Um, and so that's kind of what I've been learning as an, I guess, professional artist and more advanced artist. Um, I say those with quotation marks around them. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I think we're pretty much on the same page there because I, I really want to take the judgment out of creativity because it's so easy to judge ourselves by other people's stuff, you know, by how long it takes versus, you know, it takes me, say, three years to learn how to paint stick figures because it's me, it might. Um, whereas, you know, somebody else is going to be able to sit down and, and you know, do a, a master portrait in three years. And if I sit here and I say to myself, well, I'm terrible because I can't do that. And I've been at it for three years too. What good does that do? What does that even really mean? That really is so, 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 so important for people who are creative to understand. Because I think that we get so hung up on the end result, we don't appreciate where we currently are. At least you're picking up the pen or the pencil or the paintbrush or the crochet hook. There's Mm -hmm. someone who didn't even do that and they want to do what you're doing. Yes. And like you said about your grandmother, it's it's about the joy, really. If you're not Mm -hmm. getting joy out of it, why are you doing it? That's exactly it. That is really it. So I want to make sure that we get to talk about, you know, the things that you've referred to already about what you want to say with your work and and your greater mission. So can you get into some of that for us? Um, what what specifically do you mean? Well, I was kind of leaving it for you to decide, but um, you mentioned growing love for marginalized communities, and I'm guessing that that's a lot of what you're trying to oh, what you're okay. referring to about saying things with your work. So. Yes. If not, go wherever yes. you like. <laughs> uh, well, the reason I asked kind of specifically is because um, there's just so much in the kind of realm of that um, that I can talk about a million different things. Mm-hmm. But um, specifically, I when I first started making the type of work that I make now, which is about identity um, and... Um, finding the beauty in kind of myself, I wanted to create a mirror for other people to see themselves. Um, And I'm going to say surprisingly that's worked, um, mostly because I wasn't necessarily sure how to actually go about doing it. I just made the work. Um, but I think that as, as odd as it sounds, and I'm sure you've heard this before, specificity is universal. Mm -hmm. The more specific we are about our experiences, the easier it is for people with similar experiences to pick up on them. Um, and so I like to make sure things I make are beautiful. I like to make sure that they're aesthetically pleasing. Um, but I also like to make sure that they deal with some of the difficult conversations that we don't want to have. And I'm not necessarily um, saying that I have people in galleries having, you know, conversations about race and crying and overcoming racism. That is definitely not what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people are seeing 
what they need to see in the work that I'm making. And I think that for me means I'm being successful in doing it. I would say so. Um, and so pretty much what I'm hoping to continue to do is to have the conversations with myself that I want to be having with other people um, through my work. And so, you know, what are my hangups about, you know, gender? What are my hangups about race? What are my hangups about sex and sexuality? Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, what is the joy in all of those things? Like, what am I proud about? What am I excited about? And what, what exactly do I love about the world and about um, really just what do I love about making art and being creative? And I try to put all of that into the pieces that I make. Seems fair. So how have you seen that impact people who've seen your work? Um, it's, it's been interesting. Um, the funny thing is, is I've actually been able to show, um, my work at my two alma maters. So, um, I got to show the work at my high school, um, and my undergraduate institution. Um, and at my undergraduate institution, I had, um, a young woman walk up to me and say, that she felt seen by the work um, because she um, has locks Mm -hmm. and um, she gets treated a certain way because of how her hair is. Mm -hmm. And to have someone celebrate it in the way that I did made her feel special. Sure. Um, it made her remember all the times she didn't feel special and told her that those times were not because of her, but because of the other person. Um, and that she is beautiful and that her hair is beautiful and, you know, people love her and she's deserving of that love. I mean, now she didn't necessarily say all of those things specifically, but, mm-hmm. um, you can tell how someone's feeling by what they decide to tell you. Sure. Um, You know, she was very emotional about it and I was not expecting that necessarily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's gotta be pretty powerful to hear. It was because I don't have that experience necessarily. Um, and to have someone feel seen, um, by the work that you're doing, even though you're not necessarily specifically speaking to their exact experiences is, is very humbling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've had people tell me that they've seen my work and cried and like, I don't really know how to respond to that um, because that is definitely not my intention. <laughs> um, but I think that if you can have a, kind of moment with yourself with my work that is kind of my goal Mm -hmm. that something in what i'm doing allows you to have a moment of peace with yourself 
That's yeah. beautiful. That really is, I think, the ultimate goal. That's one heck of an ultimate goal, my friend. I mean, I think that I personally, I think that that's how art should be. Mm-hmm. I think you should be able to have a kind of no pretenses moment with a piece of work. And I think that sometimes the way we talk about art and the way we think about art makes it difficult for people to do that. Yeah, we make it this big, overblown, super important philosophical thing. We do. And we also make it difficult for people to say they don't like something. Yes. Like for for a very long time, I did not understand photography as a medium. Mm. For a very long time. And it's only because I wasn't seeing photography I liked. Makes sense. And I didn't know that. It's the same thing with abstract art. You're just not going to like some of it. Yeah. We're we're not everybody's audience. And like, you know, it's the same thing with you really any work, any work of art, you like, you just sometimes are not going to like it. And it has nothing to do with you as a, as a person, Mm -hmm. but we make it about that. It's like, oh, well, you're not smart enough to understand what the artist was trying to do. It doesn't matter if you understand what the artist was trying to do or not. At the end of the day, you're creating the experience you're having with that work of art. That artist isn't there to tell you, oh, I like painted 18 layers of purple and then I put one layer of green over it. And that's why this is like a wonderful piece and it's groundbreaking. Like if you're not there to tell that person that, they, they're going to take what they take from it. Right. And if they don't like it, they don't like it. Yeah, there's no, arts shouldn't be a yardstick for your What's the word I want? Worthiness. Oh, it definitely shouldn't be. It really just shouldn't be. Like, I see a lot of landscape art, and I'm just like, I take no joy from this. I appreciate that you took the time to paint it, but it doesn't speak to me personally because I don't necessarily have that relationship with with nature that I think it takes to do that kind of reverent Mm -hmm. art. Same thing with, you know, paintings of cities. I'm like, that's cool. It takes skill. It doesn't speak to me. And that's okay. Right. Absolutely. So we're almost out of time here, but there is one question that I want to make sure I ask you. Yes. So going all the way back to the beginning with that conversation where reality is introduced to a child. What would you say to yourself in that moment now, if you could? Uh, I would say that you should follow your, hmm, I don't want to necessarily say follow your heart per se, but I think follow your passion is a little bit more accurate. Mm-hmm. And I and I think most people do mean follow your passion when they say follow your heart. But I think at different points in my life, I was passionate about different things for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think because I followed where the passion was taking me, I've ended up where I am now. But sure. I think that knowing that sooner 
is helpful. Because there's plenty of people who wanted to do things when they were kids that are not doing those things now. And that and and I would say probably half of them are completely happy they're not doing those things. You know, my mom likes to tell a story about how I said I wanted to be a ballerina, football player, doctor, pop. <laughs> because when you're a kid, you're like, I want to be all the things I see in the world. Mm-hmm. Because I see them. Not because I actually want to necessarily be them. And yeah. so I think when you're following your passion, it all kind of lines up. Because, you know, every now and again, I think about the different classes I've taken, the different papers I've written. And I think about the work I do now, and I'm like, I was laying the groundwork for that in 11th grade, or I was laying the groundwork for this in sixth grade. You know, I, I, I see the little breadcrumbs that kind of add up. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like what you said before. It's all training. It's just you didn't know that at the time. That is 100% correct. 100%. Well, I think that that's a great message for everybody, regardless of how old they are. Absolutely. It absolutely is. And it's definitely a good place to stop. So thank you so much. This has been a fabulous conversation. I've totally enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. You took me some places I was not expecting. (laughs) Likewise. I'm really glad. It's been great. That's this week's episode. I'm so grateful to Andre for joining us and to you for listening. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.